Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Okay, Craig, it is February 2018. We have decided we're going to go with another theme month of this month. It is the second month of the year, so why not do twos? Yep, I like it. So let's start out, I tell you what, let's do Notorious number 2 horror films. They can't just be the sequel to the series. They have to be a sequel that in some way, shape, or form has made some kind of impact, right? Like gone yeah. off the rails or completely changed direction or it was really terrible or something like that. Honestly, the very first movie that came to my mind was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Freddy's Revenge. Mm-hmm. This film is uh, often hailed as the worst in the series, although it has been, I don't know, it's been kind of revised throughout history a little bit. It, there's a very complicated background to this film. So anyway, it really stands out. It really stands out among the franchise. That is why we chose it today. I think this movie came out, and I mean, neither of us would have seen this in the theaters, but I do remember the posters, like, stand... Yeah, the big cardboard cutouts at uh, the video store. Yeah, Freddy's kind of like looking around the corner or something like that. He's got flames behind him. It was really um, pretty... It was maybe my very first introduction to the character of Freddy, quite honestly, is looking at this burned-up guy in this cardboard stand and going who is that it looks really scary but then the third film came along uh, after this and really hit a cultural touchstone and that was the movie that was super popular with everybody and all of my friends anyway at school this movie seems to have been somewhat relegated to the dustbin of new line cinema anyway um craig your history with this film uh you know i don't know i i think that i i i the first one was the first one i saw it was kind of the deal where my dad had it on VHS and I wasn't supposed to watch it, but of course that made me want to watch it, so I snuck and watched it and I thought it was, I was young it was really scary and I really enjoyed it and then I don't remember when I saw the sequel and I really don't remember what my initial response was to it ultimately, yeah, I would say that it's probably my least favorite in the series, but it's it's certainly interesting to talk about I mean, just the, kind of the backstory of how it came to be and what the production ended up being is, is is really more interesting than the plot, even though the plot is interesting too, um, which we'll get to uh, soon. But I guess because the first one was so successful, they immediately wanted to pump out um, a sequel. Because as successful as the first one had been, they had pumped so much in, so much money into selling it that their profit margin was actually pretty narrow. Um, but they saw a lot of potential, and so they wanted to get a sequel going right away. And so they fast-tracked it. Um, They got a script uh, written by... Well, first of all, um, Wes Craven didn't want to have anything to do with a sequel. Uh, In fact, he was kind of pissed off that they were trying to make this into a franchise. He never wanted that to be the case. In fact, uh, it was Bob Shea who forced him to change the ending of the first movie to an open-ended ending for the potential for a sequel. Uh, Craven didn't want to do that at all. He wanted the ending of the first movie to end happily, for it all to just kind of been a dream, and Nancy and all of her friends were fine, and they rode off into the sunset or whatever. But uh, Bob Shea was adamant that they have that open-ended nightmare-type ending. And so they, they couldn't get Craven. He wasn't interested. And so they got a writer named David Chaskin, and uh, who the only other he's written a few other movies the only thing that I really recognized was The Curse which was another horror movie from the 80s starring Will Wheaton not a great movie but I always kind of liked it and then the director 
was Jack Shoulder, who, again, has done some stuff, but not a whole lot. He did Wishmaster 2, um, which was still when Wishmaster was halfway decent. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, he, you know they, these weren't completely inexperienced people. But what's and, – and then they filmed it really fast. You know, the, they had a really limited time for both production and post-production. They wanted to get it out pretty much like one year after the release of the first one, and they did. But what's interesting to me about this one, one of the many things, um, is that it really changes the rules yeah. almost entirely. Like, whereas in the first movie, Freddy was kind of this dream demon who got to these teenagers through their dreams and, and you know, was able to interact with them and harm them in their dreams. And of course, then there were some fuzzy gray lines where like, if you could grab onto him and pull him out, he could be brought out into the real world and then he could be harmed and those types of things. Um, this one is, is very different. I mean, this one really is more like a haunted house movie exactly. where you've got this malevolent spirit who can manipulate the physical real world and whose goal it is to possess a human host so that he can continue doing his killing and, and bad stuff. It's totally different than the first movie. And it really, it removes the whole, the dream aspect almost entirely. And, and that, yeah. you know, that is, that's the foundation really for this whole series. And like you said, with part three, they course corrected and, and went back to that. And, uh, you know, of course, they continued to build the mythology from there. But this one was really a major change. Um, and they did other things like, you know, it's so typical. It was so typical then. It's so typical now that in these types of slasher movies, you have a final girl. Um, and in this one, the protagonist is a guy. And that in and of itself is uh, different and unique. Not necessarily bad, but just unexpected. And then you get into this whole issue, which at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of light shed on it. There were some rumblings. Some people were talking a little bit. Um, but there are these... Well, let me just say this. When you look it up on IMDb, uh, if you look at the IMDb plot words for the movie, the plot words are gay, homoeroticism, a <laughs> subtext, jockstrap, and Freddy Krueger. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's way down at the bottom, right behind Jockstrap. <laughs> right. That is interesting. That's true. If you if you if you Google it, you're going to pop up a BuzzFeed article that calls this the gayest horror film ever made, uh, and that has been a moniker that kind of got stuck on it maybe a couple decades ago. Um, and this is a reason why people have revisited it with a little bit more fondness than I think in the subsequent years. What's interesting about it is if you go back and you look at the history, Mark Patton really, really hates... I, I think now he's embracing a little bit of, okay, mm -hmm. every, it's kind of a better time for him to be able to embrace it now that um, attitudes towards homosexuality have changed so drastically in the last decade. Right. But in the intervening periods, he really credited this movie with ruining his career because – even though, you know, there's a lot of gay people in, in acting and in Hollywood, it still just wasn't something that you flaunted. And right. he felt like this movie, in a way, outed him. And he felt not just that, that that happened, but that it was almost a deliberate... Well, first of all, he said the writer wrote it in, which was something that, you know, the writer denied. Um, David Chaskin denied for many years until it was safe for him to say, okay, yeah, I actually wrote it in considerably and duh. <laughs> 
Um, mm-hmm. Jack Shoulder claimed to be completely ignorant, and I think he probably was. <laughs> like, even um, Mark Patton says that a lot of the people on the production were just dumb straight guys who had no idea what was going on. But he still thinks that, sh- that Shoulder in, in, in people, decisions were made on the set, changes were made to the script and to some of the scenes uh, that, whether it was intended or not, just seemed to throw even more gasoline on this, you know, gay fire of the film. It was intended. I mean, like, well, I mean, come on. The the writer subsequently oh. admitted that you know he he wrote the subtext in. Well, no, and I, it's just I don't so... deny that. Of course he did. Of course he did. Right? The... No, no. I, I'm just saying for for anybody. I just can't imagine how anybody could say they didn't know. Like, I mean, I guess. I, I've never, you know, been in a major motion picture or anything like that, so I understand maybe there would be some surprises, you know, when you see the film and you see the actual cut of it, you know, uh, there may be some undertones that you didn't really realize were there when you were standing in front of a camera performing or when you were standing behind the camera recording or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this is so bold on its face. Like, <laughs> how any... And, and I get I get that it was a different time and these things weren't talked about as commonly and, you know, homosexuality wasn't represented as much in film, especially mainstream film, film and especially horror. I mean, you never saw, really, unless they were joke characters, gay characters in, in horror movies. And, uh, but, oh my god. I mean, when we get into the plot, I mean, it's just so obvious and I I don't want to be stereotypical, that's mean, but Mark Patton, the guy who plays the main guy, Jesse, is kind of an effeminate guy. Like, yeah. he's not over-the-top, like, swishy or anything like that, but he's just kind of got an effeminate quality to him. He's kind of pretty. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> like, yeah. well, and then the decisions that were made for his character... <sighs> Gay. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. But but I can see, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna defend Jack Shoulder just a little bit. Whether or not he deserves it. If you're a director of a film, you have a billion things on your mind. You're filming the film, you know, out of sequence. Uh, sometimes you you miss the forest for the trees. I think. And there are scenes in here. Obviously, there's like a kind of an S and M scene and whatnot with the coach. But. The coach, you know, there are comments made about the coach early in the film. How much longer do you think he's going to keep us out here? It should be all night. The guy gets his rocks off like this. Hangs around queer S&M joints downtown. He likes pretty boys like you. Get out of here. If you're shooting those scenes and you're the director, you're kind of thinking that this, you're not necessarily thinking this is playing to the kids' problems. You're thinking, okay, this is just a manifestation of how they feel about this guy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I- I'm sorry. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall all over. I don't care if Jack Schultz, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think it's plausible that there's a bit of a mix that yes, clearly David Chaskin knew what he was doing. There were probably several people on that set who knew what they were doing. Robert Englund himself at one point wanted to like get Freddie's finger in his mouth. Yeah, in a totally homoerotic scene. Yeah, I mean, exactly. obviously we're going out of context, but at one point, you know, Freddie basically is courting this kid. All right, so Jesse is a new kid in town. They move into Nancy's house, the Elm Street house, Freddie's house, um, that's been sitting abandoned for a really long time. And um, uh, so he's this he's this new kid, and uh, he's ever since he's been there, he's like having these night terrors. Like the first scene. 
he's uh, on a school bus. And it's, you know, doing a school bus thing, driving down the street, picking kids up, dropping kids off and stuff. Um, and he's just sitting there, and he's kind of gross and greasy and sweaty, and he's sitting in the back, and nobody's talking to him. Eventually, it's just him and a couple other girls left on the bus, and uh, they're laughing at him and making fun of him. And then all of a sudden, the bus starts to go crazy, and it's like flying down the street, and it runs into this desert, um, and there's lightning, and we see that the bus driver has now... We see his arm, like, shift the gears, and it's Freddy's arm with the glove, and um, the, the, eventually the ground falls away, and they the, the school bus is suspended just on this big pillar of rock, and everybody's screaming, and then we cut to a very domestic, right away, a very quick cut to domestic scene of a woman slicing tomatoes, and we hear, it's, it's a small family, a mom and dad and a little girl, and we hear from upstairs this very high-pitched <laughs> girl-like girl-like scream and like i knew it was jesse i've seen the movie and frankly if i and probably any man were really terrified that's probably what their yeah. natural real scared scream <laughs> sure. would sound like um but it's certainly not butch uh and and he <laughs> screams his way through this whole movie <laughs> Uh, he actually is, he, he kind of, again, you know, he was upset by it initially, but now he's kind of embraced it. In fact, uh, uh, he kind of refers to himself as the first male scream queen and <laughs> he, he really is. Um, but anyway, he's been having, uh, these night tears and just right away, you know, he sits up in bed, he's all sweaty, like he's greased up. He gets up and walks around in his tidy whities like, <sighs> Oh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, I'm reading into it, uh-huh. and and but when you're looking for it, when you're looking for it, you, it's right there in front of your face. It's definitely there. Yeah. Oh man. No, there's no question. No question. So this kind of establishes this house, like you said. This is kind of a haunted house movie in a way. It establishes the house as a supernatural place, right? Because mm-hmm. he's the only one. Let's. I mean, in the first film, all these kids, you know, were having these nightmares and these dreams, and Freddy was trying to get to them. In this case, he is the only one uh, who is having bad dreams at all, and it's connected to the house because um, obviously they just moved in. Uh, and uh, there's a later scene here where Jesse goes to see, uh, goes to the basement of the house. There's a furnace down there and he reaches in and he pulls out the glove that's wrapped up now was was freddie's glove wrapped up in the first film did it come into the real world and yes it was there. remember there? the the mom had it she like oh that's right she took it when that's they right. burned him or whatever and she had it in the furnace or whatever oh that's right <laughs> I, I I can't imagine it would still be there. And there's other stupid stuff like that. Like yeah. <laughs> um, he has he has this girlfriend named Lisa, and she's played by a girl named Kim Myers, who is recognizable. She was in Hellraiser four, but I think that the reason that she's so recognizable is she bears a striking resemblance to a young Meryl Streep. Oh like, yeah, she looks so much like her. And and if you read trivia about it, there are some places that will say that's why they cast her um but uh mark Patton, the guy who plays jesse has said no i was in on the casting and we definitely picked her because she was the best for the role and blah blah, blah. but whatever she she looks just like meryl streep 
But at some point there, she's helping him unpack his room and she's putting things away in the closet and she's like, oh, what's this? And she pulls out this old dusty book and of course it's Nancy's diary. <laughs> which, which, by the way, inside the closet, the only other thing in this closet is a Parker Brothers game called Probe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and like on on Jesse's door, there's a sign that you can barely read, but what if you can read it? It says "No chicks allowed." Like, come on! But that's a typical typical thing for teenagers (laughs) to put on there. You're right. If you put all of these things together, of course, it all adds up. Oh gosh, and you know, uh, so basically, but you were talking about like how he's there's weird stuff about the house. And it seems like he's dreaming some of these things, but it's really unclear yeah. if he's dreaming or if he's awake. Yeah. Because it seems like sometimes he's awake when he's seeing Freddy, like, throwing body parts into the furnace underneath the house. And all of this is having an effect on all of the people in the house. Like, they keep talking about how hot it is and, oh, the air conditioning must be broken. And, uh, well, it's because you've got some ghost in the basement burning the furnace all the Fired time. Fired up the furnace in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's weird. Oh, and there's there's scenes in here, you know, where you know, there's that point of view shot kind of like in um oh, what was the movie we watched? Was it The Omen 2 or something where where the it's a point of view of like from the furnace and then it goes up the stairs and it goes through the house and then up into the bedroom and things like that. Yeah. You know, these typical Amityville too. Yeah. Ghost things. Later on, there's a shot, a scene where Jesse comes down and, and he, he's constantly asking about the house at one point or somebody mentions actually, I think that was his, uh, his friend Grady, right? Yeah. His hot friend Grady, who he totally has the hots for. Yeah. <laughs> his only, <laughs> let's say the only other friend in this whole movie. <laughs> right. He wants to spend the most time with the one he really goes to when he's having trouble it's like the girl comes to him but he goes to grady (laughs) always always and i can understand why grady's a good looking guy you tell me you moved into that big white house the bars in the window yeah what about it shit you can tell your old man he's a real chump what are you talking about now grady some chick was locked in there by her mother and she went crazy she watched her boyfriend get butchered across the street by some maniac there's this Coach Snyder, and they're play, all playing ball, and uh, I don't remember. Something happens. Grady pants him. He pulls his pants down. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> and, his bare, and his bare butt is hanging out in the wind. And then the coach comes over and is like, all right, dirtbags, assume the position. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to get down on the ground. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's when he talks about how Grady you know, hangs out at gay S&M bars and stuff. And that's another thing about this movie, and this kind of holds true for the franchise. And, it, you know, there's a logic to it that the town wants to keep these stories under wraps because true. I guess they know if kids are talking about it, then bad things will happen or whatever. But this was supposed to have happened five years ago. How would these teenagers not know? You know, like, <laughs> they would have had – they would know. But anyway, they don't. But Five years. Yeah, so – yeah, five years. Um, so, and, and then it, he, we see another dream, I guess, where Jesse sees Freddy burning stuff in the basement. And so then he goes and he like opens the door to the basement and he sees him down there. And so he pulls it closed and then like Freddy's trying to pull it open from the other side and he turns to run and Freddy's right there. And that's where we get this really weird scene where they're standing super close together face to face. And Freddy takes his glove and is just stroking this kid's face. And then he uses his fingers too. And he's saying things like, 
I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got the brain. Talking about this young kid's body, and... That becomes the whole premise. Freddy really, really wants to get into this young boy's body. Um, yep. And he's going to do whatever he can. But that's the scene that you were talking about where Robert England wanted to put his claw in Jesse's mouth, but Patton would not go for it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that was just the one step too far, you know? Um, and, and supposedly, I guess, the makeup artist told Patton, you, you don't, don't do want to do that. <laughs> this is not going to be good for your image. Yeah. So he screams and he wakes up and then there's a weird part where he's in class and he falls asleep and somehow like it's like Grady sees that he's sleeping and then all of a sudden there's an enormous snake crawling all over him <laughs> and like caressing his face and he wakes up and screams and you know I thought that this was pretty typical because this happens a lot in these movies somebody falls asleep in class something scary in the dream world happens they wake up everybody looks at them weird but no when he wakes up there really is a giant snake on him and the teacher comes and takes it off the teacher, like how did yes. it get there yeah I know the teacher's like you're not gonna play with animals during my lecture like what <laughs> how did this <laughs> this snake just found its way around this kid you're right it, it messes with the mythology considerably now freddie can affect things in the real world it's really unclear how the dreams are connected or whether or not he's even dreaming with a lot of these things like you said so right. <clears throat> so he's a haunted kid right right and you know in in hindsight now everybody's talking about it and they say well the whole thing is intended to be a metaphor for his latent homosexuality and him trying to keep his demons inside and not allow them to come out and oh okay <laughs> Sure, why not? The next scene is one of my favorites where, okay, so he wants to go out, um, but his dad's making him unpack his room, so he goes up to his room and uh, does a dance (laughs) 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 to the song Touch Me All Night Long, where he... Where he dances, and he thrusts his butt into the dresser drawer to get it closed, and then he grabs some sort of phallus and jumps onto the bed and starts simulating masturbation with it, (laughs) at which point his mother and his mother opens the door, and the girl, Lisa, is there with him, and something pops off the end. <laughs> what was? I don't even know what he was playing with, but he's like stroking it, and then right as soon as they open the door, something shoots off the end. It's like, oh uh, my god. It's like, um, and, and it's all in close-up. Like, all of these little bits are really zoomed in on. It's not, it's not like this dance is done in a wide shot. It was supposed to be an homage to Tom Cruise's dance in Risky Business, and I see that it is relatively similar, but there are certainly more suggestive things going on here than there were there. But it's really kind of funny, and I guess that he was really reluctant, the actor was really reluctant about doing it, and he kept getting them to postpone it and postpone it in production, and then finally he did it. And there are various uh, accounts of this, too. The the director said that Patton came to him and said, look, I'm nervous about doing it, but I've worked on the moves you know, just roll the camera and we'll see what happens. And uh, Mark Patton says, no, that's absolutely not true. Every little bit of it was scripted, and he just did exactly what it said for him to do in the script. Um, wow. But it's re- it's hilariously funny, one way or the other. It is. 
It is funny. Okay, so at this point, does the tiny bird start attacking everybody? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some of this stuff is rather silly. Um, there's somewhere in this in this mix again. This is something that happens in the real world. They have these tiny little birds, and yeah, like one bird. Yeah, one bird gets loose and just starts attacking the family, um, and it's. I'm thinking, just reach up and grab the bird. Well, yeah, and not only that, it's this tiny bird. Well, first it kills the other bird, and then it's flying all around, and it's pretty funny to watch. And then it explodes. It explodes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the exploding bird. And then the dad's like mad, and he's like, uh, "Animals don't just explode. There's got to be some sort of rational reason." And so he accuses Jesse of somehow setting it up, blowing it up with a cherry bomb. He's just like, "You what? set this whole thing up. Like what? For what purpose? And why? And how?" <laughs> the dad in this movie is. Um, they're obviously going for this particular archetype, the father who doesn't believe anything that's going on. There's a rational explanation behind everything. He just blames his son for ev- for, for everything that happens. Right. Even when his son is clearly in distress and cl- clearly troubled, he's like, what are you on? Just tell me the drugs you're on. And when the mother wants to take him to therapy... He needs professional help. I, th- I think we have to take him to see a psychiatrist. Oh, come on, Cheryl. Yeah, do you go What the hell will that do? I don't know. I just feel he needs help, and we don't know how to give it to him. Oh, come on, Cheryl. Are you hearing me? That boy's in trouble. No, he's not in trouble. What that boy needs is a good goddamn kick in the butt. That's what he needs. (laughs) It's just... He's just completely out to lunch on this stuff, and and it's kind of dumb. The thing that bothers me like the most about this movie is just how boring it is for most of it. A lot of stuff happens, but it's not really that serious, right? I mean, it's just it's just one thing after another. He's dreaming something about Freddy. He's dreaming this. He's dreaming that. Then some birds attack some people, and then like the toaster lights on fire. But all of it, it, it gets so muddled, right? That you don't mm-hmm. even care. Like, you know that, oh, wow, this person got cut or this person got hit or these birds attack people. But any second now, somebody could wake up and it's a dream. Or somebody just dismisses it and they go on with their lives, you know? Yeah. It, there's just no peril. There's no terror. There's really, like, no build. And they're trying there's, – there's supposed to be some build. There's supposed to be some build here with Jesse because he, he's constantly complaining. Something is, you know, happening to me. I don't know what it is. Everybody's constantly concerned about it, but nobody does anything. All right. everybody does is say, there's something wrong with Jesse. There's something wrong with Jesse. You know, there's something wrong with Jesse. Jesse, is there something wrong with you? It, right. It happens so much up, up to about the last 20 minutes of the film. I just put my yeah. head in my hands and go, all right, we all know there's something wrong with Jesse. Now, when are we going to get to the good stuff? <laughs> right. And exactly. And and Lisa is kind of, she knows there's something wrong and like he's telling her about all this stuff. Like he's telling her about Freddie and um that he feels like he's losing his mind and he thinks that Freddie's taking him over and she just keeps saying, "Let's talk about it. Let's talk <laughs> about it." Like Okay, we're talking about it. Like that's not helping me. Not. Um, oh gosh, it's and and the other thing that makes it kind of boring is that Freddy is hardly in this movie. Yeah, you know he's about in this movie as much as Pinhead shows up in a lot of the later Hellraiser sequels. Like he just pops in every once in a while to be like, uh, "Kill people for me," and then he's gone. Like <laughs> he he and he doesn't really seem to be that threatening of a force. I mean, things happen, um, but we don't get the typical... Well, first of all, we don't get any dream kills at all. None. Not a single dream kill in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. 
the first, I guess, real kill we get is when Jesse has another nightmare, and then, like, he goes and stands at the kitchen sink, and lightning strikes the dishes. Like, what? Okay. Um, <laughs> Which, and then so, the very next shot is him walking outside in the rain. Like, what? In the rain. What drove the pouring him, rain. What drove him to walk outside in the rain? And you're going, okay, this is some weird dream sequence again, so I'm not going to take it seriously. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. He ends up in this S&M bar, and uh, he's uh, uh, saddles up to the bar, and he asks the bartender for a beer and the bartender is bob shea and he's yeah. all dressed in leather too with spikes on it. it's kind of funny and um as he pours himself a beer the coach coach snyder saddles up next to him puts his hand on him and then the next thing you see he's making him do laps in the gym mm-hmm. now if this is not a dream <laughs> this whole situation just really bizarre yeah coach runs into him in the middle of the day takes him back to the school at night and makes him run laps in the gym, and then sends him into the showers. And the coach... Yeah. Meanwhile, while he's decked out in his leathers. Yes. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Like, I hope your administration doesn't find out about this, because they're going to frown upon it. I hope they don't have, like, like um, security cameras there. But, but the funny thing about it is, like, the coach never comes on to him. No. Like, you think that they're setting this up for some situation where he's being molested or he's in peril from the coach, but that is absolutely not it at all. Mm -mm. The coach, even though he's in his leathers um, and has sent him to the showers, is busy in his office in the dark, walking around, chewing gum, and starts getting attacked by a bunch of balls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, big balls, little balls, balls everywhere. Balls Balls in the face. So many balls. More balls than were in that bar earlier. And the funny thing is, it's like through this whole thing, the coach is just like matter-of-factly looking around. He's like, huh, that's interesting. I'm being attacked by balls. Eventually, um, some jump ropes that he had set out. I guess he was going to have him jump rope after after he was done showering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The jump ropes come to life and uh, twist around his wrists and start dragging him out. Now he's freaked out. Drags him all the way to the shower. Strings him kind of up on the shower. His clothes all rip off, so he is bare, completely nude, completely nude, <laughs> facing the wall, up in a very, um, you know, uh, what do you call submissive, it? submissive position. position. <laughs> <laughs> and the towels from the other room start magically flying in and whipping him in the butt. <laughs> Oh man! It's, it's... <laughs> and you see—I mean, it's—it's it's in all its glory. You see his his butt get you know bright red. So our makeup artists were coming in to take care of this. Yeah, yeah it's true. He's ah ah, and the whole time Jesse is just standing there, kind of looking at it. Yeah, also nude in the shower. Yeah, so, you know, he's... now they're just hanging out naked together. He's more fascinated by it than appalled. Let's just put it that way. But the mist comes in, and what steps out from where Jesse was standing is Freddy. So, again, we're going with this idea that Freddy has now been able to take over Jesse. And he comes up behind him, and he slashes the coach dead. Yeah, you know, in a different movie, I would actually think that this concept was kind of cool. Because I really liked that imagery of um, Jesse standing there, and then the steam kind of slowly... 
uh, hiding him, and then as the steam kind of then dissipates again, then Freddy being there in his place. And then after Freddy kills the coach, then uh, we cut back, and it's Jesse standing there. And does he have the glove on at this point? Yeah, I, I think, think he, he does. Because he, he shakes it, and he gets freaks out, and he kind of takes it off. And so, like, the suggestion, I guess, is that Freddy is possessing him, but it's also left a little bit ambiguous as to re- whether, at least at this point, as to whether Freddy is actually emerging and is actually there physically, or if it's just Jesse, and this is kind of a projection of his mind you know what i mean yeah exactly it, it is ambiguous and, and you'd never really know and i would say oh it's deliberately ambiguous but it's just so inconsistent and clunky that yeah. it just seems like they don't even care right? right and maybe that's again if you rush the script through and you rush the production through you don't even bother with these things um there's just not a lot of care taken to really adhere to a specific idea or, you know, obviously the, some kind of mythos. It's not even like an upgrade of the Freddy mythos. It's just like, we've got Freddy back, and we can throw in something about dreams and the glove and this kid getting possessed by Freddy. And that's kind of right. what the movie is. And so you you can't really think about any of this too much, or else it all just falls apart. The police bring him home. This is how we know naked. that it's not a dream. The police bring right. him home naked, deliver him to his parents, and he goes upstairs. That's when his dad asks him, you know, I just I just have two questions for you. What are you on and who's giving it to you? Mm-hmm. And he just looks at him and is like, Dad, I'm not doing drugs. And goes upstairs. In the night, he has another dream, I guess. Again, we don't know if it's a dream or if this is really happening. But, like, he hears, like, some rumbling in his drawer. And he opens it. And, like, the glove is moving on its own. And then he walks to his sister's room. And she's skipping rope. And it's got to be a dream because it's in, like, the slow-mo. Slow motion. The weird lighting and the fog and stuff. And she's doing the one-two Freddy's coming for you whole thing, which... You know, let's get that in there. <laughs> yeah. Just this once real quick to remind people. Um, <laughs> and uh, then in the morning, uh, Jesse and his dad have a fight, and the toaster catches on fire, even though it wasn't even plugged in. Like, And, and like they did, the dad's like, huh, that's weird. It wasn't even plugged in. Well, yeah, that is pretty freaking weird. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think this would be something something you care about? A little bit more than that. <laughs> so after the um, toaster incident that apparently Dad's willing to write off, um, we go to the power plant. This is part. Is this part of the mythos from the first movie, or was this added I, in? Because I thought it was the boiler room at the school. I thought the same thing, and I was asking myself the same thing. I don't remember there being anything about a factory, but then I was thinking. Um, in the remake the, of the original, which is awful, by the way, they do chase living Fred Krueger around a factory. So I don't know. And it, it doesn't much matter, but it actually makes for kind of a cool set piece later in the movie um, because this uh, factory really kind of serves as this enormous boiler room. Or actually in a lot of the movies in the series, you know, the boiler room, which isn't normally that big happens in the dream world, right? So it's right, always right. this huge, elaborate set piece anyway. Again, this movie, without much of it taking place in the dream world, creates this big, elaborate boiler-type set piece. So it's, it's an interesting difference between the two kinds of films. Anyway, she has done some research at the library, which thankfully we didn't have to see, uh, and she just presents it to Jesse, matter-of-factly. Lisa does. Do you remember in the diary when Nancy said she kept finding herself in a boiler room? Well... Fred Krueger worked here. It's an old power plant. Here. What is all this? 
I did some reading on our friend Fred Krueger. Fred Krueger kidnapped 20 kids and brought them here and killed them. They're walking around this empty, <laughs> this empty factory, and suddenly their eyes gaze upon what? A closet. (laughs) 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 And suddenly, uh, Jesse is terrified of this closet. And uh, he walks very slowly towards it. And uh, for no really good reason why they're terrified of this thing, to be completely honest, it's just it's just sitting there. Uh, and he walks up to it, and he opens it, and a, uh, there's a rat inside, which freaks out Lisa. Yeah, so they, so they just hold each other very tenderly. <laughs> this is funny. Like, I think at this point in the film is when you realize, like, there is, they are friends, but there seems to be absolutely no romantic connection between the two of them. Like, it seems like she wants there to be, but he's either disinterested or he's just so occupied that he either can't see it or he he just... Is gay. Yeah, or is gay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> true 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 you know i don't i really don't remember i feel like there's more of him being tormented and blah 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 yeah there's a lot of what's the matter with jesse let's put it that way (laughs) all these good-looking 20-something teenagers are there and uh at first uh her parents are like chaperoning and the dad's all goofy and playing old music and like you know running the barbecue and telling those rascally kids to not do cannonballs in the pool and stuff but eventually the mom lures the dad upstairs with sex and so then the kids um you know they turn on the good music and they whip out the beer and now they can really have fun but jesse's not having any fun so he gets up from his corner and goes and walks into the changing room and lisa is knocking on the door jesse let me in let me in and he finally does and he's like i'm just not feeling this i'm gonna go home and she's like but let's talk about it jesse why won't you talk to me (laughs) (laughs) what is it Jesse, what's wrong? Because she just wants to talk about it. <laughs> and that's when he, he goes into a big spiel about uh, there's something inside of him nobody can understand. <laughs> <laughs> they have a makeout scene, um, which goes okay up until this giant Freddy tongue shoots out of Jesse's mouth. And she doesn't notice it, but he notices it and it disturbs him enough that he jumps up. Uh, and runs out. And jumps into bed with Grady. <laughs> yeah, the next shot is of him leaping onto Grady, and Grady's like, what, what's going on? And he flips on the light, and <laughs> he's apparently run to Grady's house and made it to his bedroom. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana, and you want to sleep with me. It's pretty on the nose. (laughs) In classic Nightmare on Elm Street form, the person who's being tormented says, you have to watch me sleep. Don't go to sleep. And then Jesse goes to sleep and uh, Grady tries to stay awake for about five minutes. And then he goes to sleep too. And instantly... Jesse is overcome. And this is, I guess, one of uh, technically the cooler scenes to to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, Because there's this cool, uh, I guess you would call it a transformation that happens. It's like, I guess this is, I mean, this is happening in the real world, right? It's not the dream world. Well, I guess. I mean, it it made a point of showing them both fall asleep. But then from this point on, everything. 
Yeah. I don't know if they're dreaming, but other and they're like sleepwalking. I don't know. It's so unclear. Well, I mean, if this were truly the real world, there'd be nothing left of Jesse because Freddy just basically bursts out from inside of him, and the rest of Jesse falls apart. You know. Yeah. But um, you know, it's a movie. So anyway, he kills Grady through the door. And then is really upset about it. <laughs> yeah. It's so strange. Like, you know, he, he, it, well, it's so dumb. First of all, it's dumb, and then it's strange. Like, it's dumb in that Grady, all he can do, this big, beefy, burly guy, all he can do is cower against a door and bang against it like it's locked from the other side. Dad, Dad, help me. And at some point, then his parents come to the other side of the door, and they're banging on it. Open the door, open the door. Like, nobody can open this door, apparently. So then he stabs Grady, I guess, through his... Okay, he penetrates Grady through the door. (laughs) We'll just go all in with this. Um, And cuts through him, and then jumps out the window and runs back to the house. So he's able to escape, and when he gets back to the house, Lisa has decided she's going to leave the party and go to his house. So she happens to meet him just as he comes in. And he's got blood all over his hands. He's got blood all over his thing. And the whole time, Lisa's just standing there going like, Jesse, my God, you're hurt. What happened? I I killed Grady. What's wrong? Lisa, I killed Snyder. Jesse, what are you talking about? What are you talking what? about? <laughs> uh, what? Jesse, come on. Just talk. Just tell me what's going on. Yeah, she's completely nonplussed. <laughs> Right. She's she's not bothered. She's not concerned, not bothered at all. She's just worried about him, um, which is so dumb. I mean, like you said, literally, he's covered in blood. He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. Outside, the pool starts to boil, and hot dogs start exploding like firecrackers, and... Meanwhile, Lisa tells Jesse, I read more of Nancy's diary, and at the very end... The last entry said, I realize now that he's pure evil and we've been giving him power through our fear and through our screams. And so she's like, don't be afraid of him. You can fight him. And he's like, no, I can't. He's coming. And then um, he turns into Freddy. Um, Like he tries to fight him a little bit, but not really. So he turns into Freddy and Freddy is just kind of menacing Lisa um, and taunting her. Throwing dishes at her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Knocking over tables and things. I don't know. Oh. Then Freddy in Jesse's voice says, kill me, Lisa. And so she's got this big butcher knife and she kind of like gingerly stabs him a few times and nothing <laughs> happens. But I guess her willingness to do that inspired Jesse or something. So he like turns and jumps out of the glass door and disappears. Yeah. Which is weird. And so then, every, like, everything that was going on weird at the party stops, and everybody's just kind of looking around like, what's going on? Until Freddy pops out of the ground, and then just chaos erupts. He starts chasing around these teenagers, he's killing some of them, he's just kind of taunting other ones. There's this hilarious part at one point where this one kid's like, dude, just calm down, it's okay, <laughs> I'm here to help you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Yeah. And Freddy's just looking at him like he's an idiot. But this whole scene makes no sense. It makes no sense. How is Freddy out in the real world? Uh, uh, Dozens of people see him. You know, everybody can see him. Eventually, the parents come down. They can see him. The dad tries to shoot him, but Lisa stops him because he's really still Jesse on the inside. Um, And then Freddy runs away. 
Yeah. That scene. I mean, I, I don't know what more there is to say about it, but it's just dumb. And it's so funny. Like, I was trying to take notes, um, and so I was pausing to write things down and, and <laughs> pausing it and looking at the looks on these people's faces when they were reacting to Freddy. It was just one of the funniest things um, <laughs> I'd ever seen. I particularly enjoy that part where Freddy's got all of the teenagers cornered against a shrub. And uh-huh. he's just staring at them from probably, you know, 20 feet away, and they're all just stopped and staring at him, too. I think that's the point at which the kid comes out. It's like, dude, yeah. it's okay. But, like, really? Like, nobody in this in this reacts like, like, okay, so there was all this mass chaos, and he's chasing them all around, and they all decide to suddenly corner themselves behind a shrub and stop. Well, that's because of another totally nonsensical thing, is that he's obviously controlling reality because like every time they try to climb over a fence like this huge fire shoots up and like like he can electrify the fence so like he's got them stuck in there like what how is this it, it doesn't make no sense it makes it, there's no continuity from the first movie whatsoever but okay but then that leads up really to probably my favorite part which is the finale um i guess Freddy, who's really still Jesse on the inside, looks at Lisa and appreciates the fact that she didn't allow her dad to shoot him so he runs off <laughs> and somebody's like, where would he go? And Lisa gets a knowing look, and she jumps in her car, and she drives back to the factory. Where, apparently now this is Freddy's entire lair, and as she walks in, she's confronted by some, like, hellhounds, <laughs> which are obviously just, like, Rottweilers with, like, garbage pail kid masks oh on. Oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> they, they really pulled all the stops out for that effect that's for sure those poor dogs <laughs> I, I know you could tell they did not want those things on their heads i mean it looked kind of menacing but it looked you know like they're just trying to shake these things off and you could tell they didn't want them on the screen very long either there's like a couple really quick shots in her reaction then she just walks past them i guess the idea is that she's going with that idea that if you're afraid of him if then you give him his power so if you're not afraid you can just do anything right and that's kind of the the weapon that she's going in with but like it's just so weird like you know she's walking around this factory and it's a cool set piece you know it's big or i'm sure a lot of it is probably matte paintings or something but it looks cool and she's walking around and then she like encounters a hell rat and then the hell rat gets eaten by a hell cat <laughs> and then she's running around and finally freddie shows up and they have this confrontation where basically it's not entirely dissimilar to Nancy's solution at the end where she just, you know, says, I'm not afraid of you. That's part of it. But it's also very lovely in that, like, Lisa is just like, Jesse, I know you're in there. I know you're in there. Fight it. Fight it. And finally, she's like, I love you. And love, love wins the day. You can tell, you know, Robert England is doing his best to show the fight going on inside him. and <laughs> But it's um, hard to do with all that makeup on. <laughs> uh-huh. And so finally, as a last resort, she, like, gets down on the ground with him. And he goes, he re- raises up his glove, and she grabs it, and then she makes out with him, <laughs> with Freddy. <laughs> and so then, Freddy erupts into flames... <laughs> and burns, 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 and it looks like there's just, you know, like his ash and remains there or whatever, and Lisa is crying and crying, and then from the ashes emerges Jesse, uh, and he's apparently okay. Reborn. And, yeah. He's come to terms with his <laughs> his identity. <Right. laughs> he, 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 yeah, he, he came right out of there. Um, and so, you know, potentially that would be the end, but of course they were 
hoping that this would be a franchise, so they had to give us another, you know, little twist ending or whatever. And it's very similar to the first movie in that Jesse is going off to school and his mom is saying goodbye and they're so happy that everything's over. In fact, Jesse's so happy that he does like a little victory leap as he runs towards the school bus. Um, And they get in the school bus and he sits down next to Lisa and this whole time I'm thinking... Where did his car go? Like, <laughs> I know. they've been they've been driving the to school. Yeah, they've been driving to school this whole movie. But I guess now they're riding the bus. But anyway, they're like, "Oh, thank God, thank God, it's all over." And and Lisa's like, uh, "Let's just not talk about it." And so then he starts to kind of notice that this is reminiscent of that very first dream that he had in the beginning and the bus is going fast and he starts to freak out and Lisa's trying to calm him down and he yells for the bus driver to stop and the bus driver does to pick somebody else up and they think everything's fine and they've got this friend who we haven't mentioned because she's totally inconsequential but she's like leaning up over the seat behind them and she's like see it's all over and then Freddie's arm pushes through her chest and everybody screams and the last shot is the shot of the bus flying off into the desert like it had in the beginning yeah (sighs) yeah and you know you described her last encounter with freddy like it was this you know kind of like it was this great battle and and it sounds like that it should have been like that but it's so boring like i felt i felt like that the whole movie it's just so boring for most of it even when freddy's attacking the teenagers you're just more confused than anything and uh, you know, it's it's just I, it's clearly a rushed job. I mean, more than anything, it's clear that not a lot of thought was put into this film. They had to get another Freddy movie out, and so they did. And this is it. And it was enough anyway to give them another Freddy film and more money so that they could make a third one, which is arguably you know one of the best in the franchise. Definitely, I think. definitely. And then, it's because it really nails down the mythos where this this one you know kind of went off the rails, and I think that that's they were more consistent about it from then on, which is another reason why this is seen as sort of the black sheep, is that it doesn't really fit in with the other Freddy movies in tone, with the mythology, and with the comedy, with the scares, even the makeup is is different, you know. But, but again, it's a yeah, second yeah. movie, so you know, I mean, some of this stuff you got to give a pass to, but. Well, and it just it kind of feels like the the bastard stepchild of the franchise. I mean, yes, uh, you know, Freddy is completely not entirely, but very different in nature. He looks different because the original makeup artist didn't come back, and so the makeup design is different. I mean, it's he's still recognizable as the character, but he's he he looks different. It's the only movie in the franchise that doesn't make use of that classic score that you always associate mm-hmm. with these movies. I mean, from this point shame. forward, that score opens every single movie i think and and is continuous throughout um and i missed that i love that you know it's signature to uh the franchise and this is also the only movie in the series where aside from robert england aside from freddie no characters appear who are in the previous film nor do any of the characters from this film appear in any of the other uh sequels so it really is just kind of a standalone thing and as an oddity in that way, you know, for for fine connoisseurs of horror like us, you know, I would say see it. You know, it's oddball. You kind of got to see it. Um, but if I were if, – if let's say one of my students, somebody who, you know, is too young to have appreciated these when uh, they came out, um, if I were to recommend the series to them, I would say start with one, 
skip two entirely, go directly on to three, and then go through from there. Um, yeah. Because it, 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 there's nothing in this movie that is, affects the continuity of the rest of the series in any Correct. way. And, and, it, and it kind of neuters Freddy in a way, just by placing him in this situation where he's... I mean, okay, he's possessing another kid, but the flip side of that is this kid has also possessed him, right? So when Freddy is big and bad and evil and going around terrorizing people, there's really this scared little kid inside of him that can break out at any moment if somebody shows enough love or somebody yells right, right. at him, you know? And so then you get this... This tension on Freddy's face, and like like you said, you know he's doing his best to show this conflict through all this makeup, but it it turns Freddy into like, I don't know, it, it takes his character away. He's not as threatening in that way than because he's set up with this character with all this internal conflict, and there's just so many stupid, dumb things that happen in this film, and it's not fun, stupid. It's like roll your eyes, stupid. Mm-hmm. The little parrot, the little little bird attacking people and exploding, you know, the toaster lighting up. I, the all these demon things. dogs, yeah, demon dogs and demon cats. Like that's the worst they could come up with to for her to encounter in this giant, you know, factory of horrors. <laughs> it's you know, well, and and just I just think that uh, yeah, eliminating the entire dream aspect just doesn't make any sense, and it takes away so much from it. And um, I'm you know, fortunately. I really think that this movie could have killed the franchise. Um, but fortunately, I guess, based on the popularity of the first one, it did well. It did twice as well as the first one. Um, so they were able to go ahead with three, which was Dream Warriors, which is great. Um, and they brought back uh, Heather Langenkamp, um, which I think was a, the only thing to do. And then, you know, the movie kind of took a different course from there. From there, it kind of started to rely more on the humor. Freddy became a much more central character. I read a... Um, a quote from the guy who played Patton, or not, excuse me, his name's Patton, the guy who played Jesse. Uh, and uh, he said that if you notice in the first movie, uh, Heather Langenkip. Langenkamp gets first billing. In the second movie, he gets first billing. And it's not until the third movie that Robert Englund starts to get top billing, and then uh. he keeps it from then on. <laughs> um, and in fact, they didn't even, they almost didn't cast Robert Englund in the role for the yeah. second movie, because he demanded a raise, as well he should have. I mean, that's, you know, that only makes sense. The movie did well, he's a key component of that. He should, they should have thrown more money at him, but they didn't want to. And so, they actually filmed for two weeks without him until... Uh, the director was like, you know, we've got to get Robert back. It's just not going to work without him. And, you know, then the, the I love the whole series. It's fun. It's such an integral part of my childhood and growing up. I was always so excited. And, and it may not have been the best um, idea from a quality perspective, but, you know, this was kind of an event. It was kind of like Saw. You know, a new one came out every summer and uh, or whenever they came out, once a year. And I was always excited, and I wanted to go see them in the theaters, and, and I did. And, and they range in quality. Three, I think, is great. Four was pretty good. Five was not quite as good as four. Six was awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, they got around to New Nightmare, which I also thought was really good. Top three, at least. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm glad that the movie didn't kill the franchise, because I think that it could have. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it, 
from any kind of critical perspective, it, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for his part, uh, Mark Patton seems to have an uneasy piece with this movie. Um, I guess a lot of water has kind of gone under the bridge by now. And the fact that it has gained this, this cult status, if you will, then he's been able to embrace it more and kind of enjoy that, that popularity that, that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So I think he feels like at some level, even though he blames this film for all of his bad experiences in Hollywood and, he well, he left acting. I mean, th- this mm-hmm. was it. He he quit. Yeah. He went into interior design, and I think part of the reason that he's embracing it a little bit more now is because people are embracing him, and he's getting yeah. you know a lot of positive attention, and um, of you course. know he's being he's being kind of celebrated as kind of being a groundbreaker, even if he was an unwitting groundbreaker. He kind of was, and people appreciate that, and I think that he does too. And, you know, he, uh, I don't know who produced it, but he participated in a documentary called Scream, Comma Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was about his story and getting the story about this Have movie. Have you seen yeah. that? I have, and I'd like to. I, I feel like in I've read so much about it that I feel like there's not going to be any revelations that I don't already know. But it would be kind of interesting to hear it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, it would be. Now, if you see Never Sleep Again, I think, th- which is the the documentary that goes yeah. into the, the box set, um, th- I think they address this considerably in that, and they interview a lot of the people they involved. They do. So you can catch that as well, and it might even be up on YouTube, actually. Maybe. Yeah, so, yeah, if you're interested in diving more deeply into the production of this film, there are things out there you can check out. Well, and that's really more interesting than the film itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Remember that we are on Facebook. We have our website. And uh, you can leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. We did crowdsource some ideas for our theme month of two, so some of you are going to see some of the movies that you suggested. We are going to continue next week and beyond with sequels in Notorious Twos. Also, don't forget, you can go to the website, uh, twoguys.red40.net, and read some written horror reviews randomly up there as well every Thursday. Until next week, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. (laughs) 